So please turn, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 25. We've been in Matthew's gospel for, would you believe, almost three years now. And, uh, and we are nearing the end. And we're going to take a little break around the Christmas season and the beginning of the year because we're reaching the end of the teachings of Jesus. And these are his final public words recorded in Matthew, Matthew's gospel. This morning I'm reading Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, a familiar parable to many of you, but let us hear now the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. In the movie that I'm sure you all have seen, Ralph Breaks the Internet, we meet a character named Ralph. It's animated, so I understand if not everybody's seen it yet. And Ralph is in a position where he needs a lot of money really fast. And he he discovers that uh, he's in a position where he can make a lot of really funny videos and monetize those videos. And through those funny videos, he could quickly earn the money that he needs to get out of the situation he's in. And it, it, it's working. His videos are very popular, and it's, it's, it's a big boost to his self-esteem that, that all these people are liking the videos that he's made until he makes the mistake of exploring the comments section. First rule of the internet, don't ever look at the comments section. Because the comments section to his videos are filled with judgment and mockery and scorn and criticism. And it just breaks his heart. No one likes to be judged. And perhaps for many of us, our fear about final judgment that we face in life is that it will be much like the comments section, as if there were a comments section on every moment of our life that we could go back and read, picking apart everything we've done with criticism and judgment and mockery and condemnation. But we are a people of grace. We are, we are saved by grace. We live by grace. Do we expect that God just simply looks on our life and says, eh, whatever, it's fine. 
Well, this parable, the, the last, as I said, the last of Jesus' public teaching here in Matthew, shows that we should expect judgment from God. So the question for us is, what will that look like? How should it affect our lives today, knowing that we will be judged by God? And how do we understand that in light of the grace that saves us? Let's look closer at God's Word this morning so that we may know what to expect when we're judged by God and how to live in light of that. And the first thing we see very clearly in this parable is that Jesus will judge. It makes explicit what has been implied for the past two chapters that we've looked at in Matthew. For all His talk of returning and for us waiting for His return and the call for us to be faithful until He returns, the unspoken truth connected to all of this is that when He returns, Jesus will judge. He will evaluate how we have waited for Him. You might remember that we recently talked about how Jesus describes His return uh, like a victorious king coming in to claim His throne. And all talk of His, his return, His coming, is, is done with that imagery in mind. The king would, would, uh, who had conquered would come into the city and, and all of His faithful servants would then leave the city to meet Him. As, as, the, as the Scripture says, we will meet Him in the air when He returns. And then we join Him on His return into the city. And then when the king returned in victory, what he would do is he would hold court. He would sit on His throne and He would judge those who had been left behind in the city, whether they had been faithful or whether they had not. And if you had been faithful to the king and served him, you would be rewarded. And that's how he describes this verse 31. The Son of Man comes in glory, all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. And anyone in Jesus' day hearing that knows that when the king returns to a city and sits on his throne, what follows is judgment. Have you been faithful and served the king in all circumstances, or have you lived for yourself, or have you served the enemy? So in verse 32... We see that when He returns, He does indeed separate people for judgment. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now we have to take very seriously that, that word, judgment. There is a way for us to think of judgment that's not in line with how Scripture speaks of it, and not in line with God's plan, as if everyone is judged, but no one is condemned, like at a costume party or a beauty pageant, where yes, there's judgment and there's rewards, but, but the losers aren't you know, sent home and fined or sent to prison for failing to win. You know, Everybody's going to be judged, but nobody's going to be condemned. That's not how Scripture describes it. In verse 46, we see that those who are found lacking will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Maybe you're not comfortable with that idea of Jesus, with that picture of Jesus, who even as Randy shared in our worship this morning, He leads with mercy, doesn't He? Yes, indeed He does. But we can overdo that and think of Jesus, the one who teaches love and grace. How could He ever judge people, let alone condemn anyone? But Jesus Himself is clear. Jesus will judge. And know this in your heart, even if you're uncomfortable with the idea of judgment, you want a judge. 
You really do if you examine your heart. Because just as we sang a few minutes ago, we see around us a world of sin, a world of sickness, a world in need, and we cry out, Oh, quickly come, dread judge of all. Even though your return might be awful and terrifying, it's the only way that sin will be removed from the world. We see unfairness, we see oppression, we see injustice, we see cruelty, and we want it to be made right, we want justice, we want a judge. So for the child of God, the judgment of God is not a terrible thing that we fear or feel uncomfortable with, it is indeed a glorious thing, it's a time of fulfillment, a symbol of hope and of restoration when things are made right. Because the king cannot judge until he's on his throne. And when the judgment comes for us and for all the nations, it means that Jesus is now indeed ruling over all, crowned, as we sang, with many crowns. But there's more to this idea. Because yes, Jesus will judge, but it's also important to see that Jesus will judge. And so we don't live our lives for others. We don't live our lives uh, for ourselves. We don't live in fear of the comments section. We live according to one standard only, the standard of the one who will judge. I, I used to have a job when I was in college and for a few years after overseeing the, the parking department of my university. The most unpopular department because our job was, number one, to make sure nobody came into a parking lot where they weren't allowed, if you didn't have the right sticker or decal. And number two, to write tickets for people who parked where they weren't supposed to park. We didn't make friends. And for most of my years working for parking staff, my job was to oversee hiring, firing, training, discipline, that sort of stuff. And the number one reason for turnover, I can say, because I had about at any given time 80 to 90 students under my employ, uh, and the number one reason for turnover was that people quickly learned that in having this job, they were losing friends. Because to enforce the rules they were called to enforce, they had to say no when their friend wanted to park in the faculty parking lot just for a minute, or when their friend got a parking ticket and they couldn't do anything about it. Because they weren't living to please the ones who employed them. They weren't living to obey the rules that were given. They were living to please their friends. And we do that. We live as if the world around us, the people around us, the people close to us will be the ultimate judge of our lives. And if we're making choices or living in a way that's unpopular or that's difficult or that puts us at odds with people whose opinions we value and care about. We are living as if they will be the judge in the end. But brothers and sisters, Jesus will judge in the end. And He's not going to look for who's been the most popular. He's going to look for who has been faithful to Him. Just as Paul writes in Galatians 1, he says to the Galatians, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please people, I, I could not be a servant of Christ. We seek to please the one who will be the judge. But there's another reason it's important to remember that it's Jesus who will judge. And that's because while it is true that we are called to discern and to judge the fruits of one another, 
of anyone who claims to follow Jesus and to exercise discernment about what is true and false and what is right and what is wrong. None of us are ever given the calling, the permission, or the right to make a judgment about the eternal state of another. Because there are those who may seem to fail at every one of our standards and measures of holiness and who yet will receive grace through Christ, a grace that we cannot measure or understand. And likewise, there will be many who do great things in the name of Jesus and who yet will ultimately be told, depart from me, leave me, I never knew you. Jesus will judge because He alone has true wisdom and full knowledge of every heart. Jesus alone knows all things. Jesus alone determines where and towards whom He will show mercy. And so because Jesus will judge, we are humble before one another. And we are quick to show grace. It's the first thing we need to know as we prepare for God's judgment, is that it is Jesus who will judge. The next thing we need to see is that grace comes before judgment. Because I imagine some of you, like me, would read this parable and feel a certain level of unease about these verses because they seem to teach that God will judge us and determine our eternity based on what? Based on what we do. Based on our good works. And to understand how that relates to the gospel, because we are, many of us, deeply drinking deeply of the gospel, that we are saved by grace, not by our works, and that our eternal salvation is based on the grace of God and not on how well we perform in this life. So in order to understand how those relate and how those connect, we're going to have to zoom out a little bit and put this teaching in the context of all that the Bible teaches about the basis of our salvation. And to do that, we're going to springboard off of verse 34 in this passage. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What we see hinted at in this verse, and what comes clearly throughout Scripture, is that grace comes before judgment. And that's important because just looking at verse 35, we see it says, for I was hungry. Come inherit eternal life for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink and so on. As if the basis of inheriting the kingdom of God is the good works that you had done in life. But that's not the case. Jesus says that that kingdom was prepared for them when? From the foundations of the world. That's an interesting phrase, from the foundations of the world. We see that phrase a few other times in Scripture in reference and in connection to salvation and eternal life. One example, Romans 7, or sorry, Revelation 17. John describes the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. He's talking about those who ultimately are not saved, and he said, Their names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Growing up in the church that I grew up in, there was a fun song we would sing. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Great fun song. Happy song to sing. And the point is, I just got saved. I just confessed Jesus. And now, because I did that, he wrote my name down in the Lamb's book of life. And as fun as that song is to sing, it's theologically wrong. 
Because your name, God is not waiting with marker in hand to find out if you will believe in him. When did he write your name in his book of life? Before the foundations of the world. At the beginning of time. Ephesians chapter 1 describes this. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God chose us to be included, to be saved, to be united to Christ, to be made one with Him. When? When did He make that choice? Before time began. The psalmist David knew this. That God's watch over us and His planning of our lives began even before our own lives came forth on earth. In Psalm 136, uh, 139, sorry, he says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every single one of the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Therefore, when we read that Jesus will judge our deeds, when we think about and consider the just judgment of God over our lives and recognize how terrifying that is, our hearts need to find refuge and flee for comfort, not in a record of good deeds that we've done, not in correct doctrines we believed or respectable lives that we've lived. We need to flee and find refuge in the midst of judgment in this one thing that God saved us before it all began, that He knew us before we were born, that He chose us before time. The children of God do not need to fear judgment because God's love and acceptance is not based on what we do for God. God's love and acceptance is based on what God already did for us. If you zoned out for a second, I want you to hear that. So I'm going to say it again. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. That God's love and acceptance of us is not based on anything that we do for God. But rather, God's love and acceptance of us is based on what God already did for us. This is what Paul means in Romans 9 when he says, So then, it, meaning salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Before there is the judgment of God, there is the grace of God. Grace comes before judgment. He showed you grace in saving you before you even knew that you needed to be saved. And so all, if all of this is true, why then does this parable emphasize the good works that we do or do not do? That seems to be the most obvious point of the whole parable. That those who showed kindness and mercy are rewarded and those who did not show kindness and mercy are punished. Well, that leads us to our third lesson on what we need to know about God's judgment. And that is that good works follow after grace. Good works follow after grace. After looking at the way grace comes before judgment, we need to see this parable with a different understanding and seeing the deeds, the good works that follow grace. 
Yes, there's, there's a distinction made in this parable. Uh, the sheep and the goats, right? The righteous and the unrighteous. Those who showed mercy and kindness and those who did not. But when was that distinction made? It began long before judgment. When the king is beginning his judgment in the parable, he, is he looking at a lot of sheep gathered before him and trying to determine which were the good sheep and which were the bad sheep? No. It's not the parable of the sheep and the sheep. It's the parable of the what? The sheep and the? Come on. The sheep and the? Goats. There we go. You're reading. Okay, you're tracking with me. So look at, look at verse 33. He's going to place his sheep on his right and the goats on the left. The distinction existed before their deeds were examined. It's not between good and bad sheep, but between sheep and goats. This follows from what we just saw. That God chose His sheep before the creation of the world and gives them grace and saves them. And what follows after that grace that we receive from God is obedience. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, I know my sheep, and they follow me. If you are one of His sheep, you follow Jesus. And what does following Him look like? Verse 35 and 36, I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Following Jesus, the product of being a sheep looks like active mercy. Meeting needs. Showing grace that to those that don't deserve it. Bestowing blessing and gifts on those that cannot and probably will not ever be able to repay it. That's a way of life that finds its source, its strength, its motivation in the gospel. In 1 John 4, verse 19, the apostle writes that we love others because God first loved us. A life that has received grace is a life that it has the power to show grace. That's how we love God. A few months back, we, we looked at, at what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. We saw that loving God is not primarily through emotional expression. Loving God is not primarily through generous giving. It's not through doctrinal faithfulness. It's not through political posturing. We saw that the greatest commandment is to love God with all that we are. And then Jesus explored that a little bit and said, but the second greatest command is like it. The second greatest command is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's how we love God. Both the righteous and the unrighteous in the parable object that they've never seen Jesus in these dire situations. Verses 37 through 39, for example, the righteous say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And his reply should cause us to reflect in verse 40. The king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The grace that we have received makes us graceful, full of grace. It makes us gracious. The good deeds that overflow from a heart redeemed are received and welcomed by God as acts of love. 
to the one who saved us. The danger, the warning in this passage is severe. Where there are no such deeds of love and mercy, no such lifestyle of kindness, it's necessary to ask, has this heart truly been touched by the grace of God? We magnify and we praise and we believe in and we trust in the grace of God. We're saved by His kindness alone and not by anything that we do, but that grace always leaves fingerprints behind. It bears fruit in our soul and in our lives. And where there's no evidence of the grace of God, no fruit of His forgiveness, we are given no assurance. We're not given assurance that merely having prayed a prayer or having given a tithe, or having sat in a seat at a church with others is enough evidence that God's grace has saved you. And so he warns us. The condemnation is clear, beginning in verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. And he goes on to describe their their failure to exhibit proof, evidence of grace. And then verse 44, they They object, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, in prison and not minister to you? God, if we'd known it was you, surely we'd have done it because we love you. We want something from you. And he will answer them saying, as surely as you did not do it to one of the least of my brothers, you did not do it to me. It is not enough, brothers and sisters, to assure yourself and to proclaim to others, I'm right with God. I I worship properly, I vote correctly, I believe the right doctrines, I show up at the right times, but if your heart is closed to those around you in need, then the king, when he judges, may bid you depart. There's a similar warning that comes to us in the letter written to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, the author says, The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, And that that illustration is the blessings and the word of God is like the rain falling on the land. A land, a person who drinks in that rain and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. If there is fruit, then you're doing exactly what God has called you to do with His blessings. However, if that land drinks the rain in verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I don't say any of this with the intention of scaring you. Okay, There's a reason I pulled that Hebrews passage out. It's because of what the author says in the next verse. In verse 9, he says, Even though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For many of you, most of you, We feel sure of better things because we know you and we see this fruit in your lives. We see you exhibiting this and I urge you, as the Scriptures say elsewhere, to do so more and more. Don't give up on that. But but is that it? Is the message then and the application then to work harder? Make sure you're doing the right things. Yes, in a way, but not really. If you'd give me just a minute or two to dig just a little bit deeper in the Scripture, because Jesus' Jesus' teaching is filled with warnings like this. But with the warnings, there is also hope. So I want to look at His words to His disciples at the Last Supper in John 15. 
Jesus says to his disciples, his followers, abide in me and I abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides, stays connected with, stays close to me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Okay, lots of warnings in Scripture about the consequences of not showing the evidence, of not having the fruit of receiving the grace of God. Bear fruit, and you are blessed. Don't bear fruit, and you are cut off. That's what we've been reading and hearing today in Scripture. The fruit he demands is the life of mercy and kindness that follows after grace. But look at how he says we get that fruit. You know the answer. You know how it is. I just, I'm just here to remind you of the good news, that it's not a matter of who's worked hardest or smartest and been the most diligent. The answer is not to work harder or to study more or to give more or to do more. The answer is this, abide in Jesus draw closer to Him. Do you want to be more generous? Do you want to be more patient? Do you want to be more merciful? Abide in Jesus. Draw close to Him. Understand His ways. Learn of His character. Grow to understand His mercy. Understand His patience. Understand His generosity. Experience His grace to you. And as He meets your needs, as you understand that He meets your needs, those blessings will overflow from you and be a blessing to the least of His brothers. And when that takes place, you can have confidence on the day of judgment. Not because you have done everything right. Not because you've been good enough. Not because your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. But because you have drawn close to Christ in whom there is salvation. And the way that you see that you have done that is that you imitate Him in loving others. Those are good words to have in mind as we approach the Lord's table this morning and prepare for communion. So join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, we we worship You this morning as needy people. As people who need Your grace. We did not need it just once. We need it indeed every day. And so we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive your sacrament this morning, that it would be a blessing to us, instructing us and strengthening us in discipleship as we declare your life, your death, your resurrection, and your glorious return to judge and to reign forever. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.